0: As Ben said, we're starting a new series uh, this week called Grey Matters. Um, So, what does that mean? Well, we make decisions every day, don't we? From the moment we wake up until the moment we fall asleep, we are making choices. What will you eat? What will you wear? Will you ignore that comment from your teenager? You know, but some decisions feel weightier, don't they? Do you speak up when your friends are being inappropriate or bullying someone? Do you challenge what you believe is poor theology? Some choices have clear answers in scripture. For example, we know it's wrong to steal or murder, but other things that come up seem less clear cut. And I think if I was going to frame anything that I'm going to say today, and I would say this has been quite a hard preach to prepare for because I've really struggled to get what the key messages that God wants me to share. And in fact, even up until this morning, I was adding bits that I felt God was saying. And I think I'd add it up in a few key words. One of them is grace. One of them is humility. Because, particularly in the life of the church, there are things, as I've as just said, that are really clear-cut. The Bible is absolutely 100% crystal clear. And other things, not so much. Or, depending on who you listen to, will give you a different perspective on certain bits of the Bible. And I think, as a church, it is fundamental that if we're going to be united we always operate with grace and humility because we don't know all things all the time. And I know know, from experience that we can be guilty of jumping in on people, saying, well, you know, the Bible clearly says this, when actually, when you step back and look at it, maybe that's not quite what it's saying, and actually you need to have a discussion and a debate about it. So we always need to operate with grace and humility in everything we do. So we are called to use judgment, though, in how we live our lives. God doesn't expect us to make judgment on our own, though, which is good news. He does send the Holy Spirit to dwell in us and help us make some godly judgments about situations that we find ourselves in. The Bible also gives us principles to live by. Um, So as I said, it might not say explicitly on a particular matter, But what you can normally find is there'll be principles through other scenarios and other situations that gives us guidance on how we should uh, live in certain situations. And those help us navigate our life when we face issues that aren't exactly black and white and we need God's wisdom to help us navigate those grey areas. I should also say up front, we're principally not talking about something that is a sin issue or not, generally speaking. Normally it's pretty clear what those are. The Bible is normally fairly clear on what's a sin issue and what's not. But it's normally rather how we act with one another as fellow believers, how we should come before God as a church, and how that then reflects out to the wider world. So is anyone feeling brave this morning? If you are, feel free at with a show of hands if you've been hurt by how a Christian has judged you or acted without grace towards you. If you're feeling really brave, feel free to put a hand up if you've judged another brother or sister in a legalistic way, either to their face or behind their back. I know I've done it. But finally, who here lives out their Christian walk not caring about what other things other people think about what the choices you make are? Because I know I've been guilty of that as well. But actually, you may be surprised to know that Paul says that even living like that, is not quite right either, and we'll have a look at that in a bit more detail in a minute. But the church is made up of real people, isn't it? People with issues, just like the rest of the world. The only difference is that we're supposed to have the grace of God in us, and as believers it is our responsibility not only to show, not only the world, but just as importantly each other, what grace truly looks like. As Jesus says in Matthew 7 verse 5, we are to take the log out of our own eye. Before trying to deal with the speck in someone else's, I heard a great quote it, uh, this week. It said, uh, Let's stop overjudging others and underjudging ourselves. We should always be looking from within before we attempt to help others. Now, I won't ask anyone here to say if the person that's hurt them through their critical words or judgment is still in the church. Um, but if they are, I would implore you to try and be reconciled with each other if you haven't been already. Um, And it may be necessary to pray through that situation to get sorted with each other. But don't ever let that situation fester because it gives the devil a foothold in our lives. One other thing to note is I'm not saying there won't be occasions when a sin issue in a fellow's believer's life doesn't need to be challenged. And we are called to do that. But we must always do that with caution in love and understanding and not trying to lord it over someone because we all have our crosses to bear. And none of us are perfect. But mainly today I want to focus on the grey areas, often theological issues or issues that the Bible doesn't necessarily speak directly to um, that can still trip us up and make believers fall out and churches split up, but are rarely, if ever, directly issues of salvation. So this can be anything from the more worldly things like church politics or how services are conducted or what outfit someone wore last week, often to more theological things though, like church authority and the roles of men and women. And it's like when you have a team of horses pulling a coach. They all need to be pulling in the same direction, don't they? Because if they don't, then either it's a complete disaster or the or the coach just ends up going nowhere. And the same is true of the church. As long as you're aligned on the big things, then we need to let the small things go. No human gets everything right, either whether that be the people in leadership Because let's face it, human leaders will fail just as much as the congregation, but God will never let you down, and that's really important to hold on to. But as long as the church is not leading people away from God and the truth of his word, then we need to learn to walk through some of the smaller issues, as I said, with grace and humility. Something which I will say up front, I've not always been good at over the years. I will also say that first-hand I've seen many churches in this town split up because of disunity. It's one of Satan's biggest weapons against the church. And it's probably the main reason why there are no big churches in Harlow and why if you want to see God Central grow as it should, this issue needs to be nailed down. Having said that, I don't know about you, but I've never seen God Central more united, more passionate about where it wants to go and more committed than where it is today. So today's message is primarily just a warning, not a rebuke for the church. So today, if you've got your Bible, we are going to read from 1 Corinthians. Hopefully it will come up on the screen in a minute. This works. (laughs) And if it doesn't, they'll do it down there. There you go. So yeah, we're reading from 1 Corinthians. And the summary of the passage is, as it says up there, Grace says that all things is permissible, but not all things are good for us. So I'm going to read from the New Living Translation, but again, follow on in whatever uh, version you've got. You say, I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. You say, I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is beneficial. Don't be concerned for your own good, but for the good of others. So you may eat any meat that is sold in the marketplace without raising questions of conscience, for the earth of the Lord's and everything in it. If someone who is a believer asks you home for dinner, accept the invitation if you want to. Eat whatever is, is offered to you without raising any questions of conscience. But suppose someone tells you this meat was offered to an idol, don't eat it. Out of consideration for the conscience of the one who told you, it might not be a matter for conscience for you, but it is for the other person. For why should my freedom be limited by what someone else thinks? If I can thank God for the food and enjoy it, why should I be condemned for eating it? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Don't give offence to Jews or Gentiles or to the Church of God. I'm just going to pray. Lord, will you open your word up to us? Will you help us to understand when we need to operate in your spirit, Lord? And when we need wisdom, will you be there with us to guide us and lead us in how we interact, both with our fellow brothers and sisters, and with the wider world around us. In Jesus' name. Amen. So some background here to this passage. Paul is writing to the Corinthians. The Corinthian church was not united. They were indulging in claims of spiritual superiority over one another. They were frequently suing one another in the public courts. They were abusing the breaking of bread, immoral sexual behaviour. And Paul has spent two previous chapters of 1 Corinthians addressing a church that's learning to live in the freedom of Christ uh, back in chapter 8 and verse 1 in particular and in God's abundant grace. However, he wants them to understand that we still have a responsibility to one another and to the Lord. A church that isn't in unity doesn't honour God. So Paul addresses an issue being debated at a time and that is eating food offered to idols. Not necessarily a salvation issue but one that is causing friction in the church. So thinking about our own lives now, has anyone here eaten food offered to idols? (laughs) Probably. Yeah. If you think you haven't, if you've ever eaten chicken from a far food restaurant, there's a possibility you've eaten halal meat, which in reality is meat killed in a way that honours an idol. Now, if you go to places like London, um, it normally tells you. In fact, when I go and see the football team I support, The walk from the station to the ground takes you not past the KFC, but an HFC. They're right up front. This is a halal fried chicken. What you might not know, though, is some of the big chains use halal without telling you, as it's easier to do it all halal than have two separate manufacturing processes, especially given that most people don't care. So as Christians, should we care? And I'll say that, having that I've wrestled with that in the past myself. Well if we go back to chapter 8 in Colossians, and I don't, in Corinthians, I don't need to turn to it, but Paul has already explained that since there is only one true God, other gods aren't real. In fact, Jesus says in Mark 7 verse 19, says that food doesn't go into your heart, but only passes through the stomach and then goes into the sewer. And by saying this, he declared that every kind of food is acceptable in God's eyes. So no, we don't need to feel judgment from God or anyone else if we like eating, at Halal Fried Chicken, or anywhere else for that matter, you'll be relieved to know. But then as Jesus goes on to say, but the words you speak from the heart, that's what defines you. Jesus is more concerned about what we say to each other, but we are called to speak in love. And that is defined by what is in our own heart. Paul also says, for our unconscious sake, we don't need to worry about observing dietary issues. However, all through this passage, Paul is taking great pains to say that just because we have peace with an issue, we still have to be sensitive to others. Even though we might be right, we don't use our rightness as a weapon to hurt or offend our brother or sister. We don't want to be a hypocrite. Just on that point, you can actually be a hypocrite in three ways, which I I hadn't really thought about this week, but yeah. It was important to understand. We can be a hypocrite towards others. Uh, Jesus is an example there, taking the log out of your own eye. If you've got an issue, don't be talking to someone else about it until you've sorted it out for yourself. We can also be a hypocrite in terms of the contradiction between what you say and what you do. There's no point saying all the right things, going to all the right prayer meetings, if actually our life is a bit of a mess. Um, We need to be right with God. And also, there's a, there can be a contradiction between what you say is right and wrong and what God has said is right and wrong. There's no point saying we're Christians if we're not going to live according to the Bible, because that's the standard for all of us. I heard quite a funny anecdote this week. Um, there was a couple of famous preachers back in the 1800s, D.L. Moody and C.H. Spurgeon. D.L. Moody, who lived in America at the time, came over to see um, Spurgeon um, turned up at his London address, knocked on the door, uh, and Spurgeon opened the door smoking a big cigar. And D.L. Moody said to him, how can a man of God do that? Now, as it happened, D.L. Moody was a bit quite short and a bit fat. So Spurgeon tapped him on the belly and said, yeah, how can a man of God do that? We should always be careful before we start throwing accusations around. When we act in a judgmental way without grace, it can have the potential to cause a stumbling block, particularly to new believers and unbelievers. And I've seen a number of people walk away from church because of it. So in the example Paul uses, you might have no issue eating at a particular restaurant, but if you are with a fellow believer, especially if they're a new believer, and by going would make them stumble in their walk or create an issue between you, then Paul is saying we should consider going somewhere else, not for our own benefit, but for theirs. We care for our brothers and sisters, and by avoiding things that will cause them to stumble, it will also avoid causing a rift in our relationship. And then we can maintain that bond and keep a united body together. So what do we do if we go out with non-Christians? Well, as long as they don't want to lead us somewhere into sin, then it should be fine to go, as it says in verse 27. But if they want to go somewhere and attempt to lead us into sin, then obviously we should say no. Also, if we go with a fellow believer to a non-Christian's house, is it? It is showing us that we should prioritise the feelings of the fellow believer over the non-believer. If the fellow believer is being made to feel uncomfortable, we should be seeking God's prompting, though, through the Holy Spirit in the wisdom in how to do that. Because we are called to be different to the world, but we're not called to be these pious people stuck in religious rules and regulations. But nor are we called to live hidden. Heed- hedonistic lives, as if it all doesn't matter because God will forgive us. We have all been given the gift of grace, but that grace is not the grace to sin, for our lives should reflect Jesus. And so we are wise to give up things that would get in the way of that. With non-Christians, we are called to be more like the moon and how it operates. If you know anything about the, uh, the astronomy, you'll know that the moon doesn't create light on its own. It merely reflects the light of the sun to provide a light in the darkness. And it's the same with how we should be. Our primary judge, we should be reflecting the light of the sun, and in this case, the son of God. Our primary jo- job is not to judge and condemn. It's to reflect Jesus to them. And then in the so doing, letting Jesus change them. We shouldn't compromise ourselves or the truth of God's word. But just letting them know who God is and allowing God to change them is all that we're called to do. i produced a slide. Here you go. Hopefully you can see that. We're all on this line as Christians. Uh, We're either at one end, the traditional kind of rules-led, all the way through to the totally feelings-led end. Personally, I come from a very traditional background and therefore my Christian walk has very much tended towards the legalistic side. As I've matured, I've had to learn to move towards the centre. I've also known many people in my church life at the other end of the spectrum and to my detriment, I've sometimes spoken badly of them for doing so. But as I say, we're all on this line somewhere and I bet most of us know, not only roughly where we are, but I also bet we know or at least have made a judgement about where other people in the church are as well, because we all have a natural tendency to judge others. Wherever we are, though, we should be aiming for the middle. As it it says on the slide, too far into legalism and we risk trying to work out our salvation through works. Too far into costless freedom, we risk being feelings-led rather than scripture-led and slipping off into sin. And both ends can risk our salvation in one way or the other. In fact, the worldwide church overall has been on a similar journey since the time of Christ. For many years under the Roman Catholic leadership, it was very legalistic and still is to a certain extent. But then from the Reformation onwards, it started its journey back towards the center. Unfortunately, the charismatic movement over the last 20 years or so has led some churches to overcorrect and they've ended up at the far left-hand end as you look at it. Again, not the way to go. I would like to think God Central has always tried to plough the middle ground and we all have a part to play in that. Fundamentally in this passage Paul is seeking to address how we should respond to the law of the Old Testament in light of the grace of Jesus. And I'm sure most of you will be aware that we actually have two options to receive eternal life with God. The first one is to be born perfect and live a perfect life. The second one is to accept that the first one is impossible and accept Jesus as our Lord and Saviour, accepting his grace and forgiveness and living differently as a result. But does that mean that the law is pointless now? Well, no, because it does three things. Firstly, it reveals the glory of God and the sinfulness of man. Secondly, it creates a civil order. Jesus came to fulfil the law, not totally do away with it. And thirdly, it guides us as followers in the way of holiness. So it shows us our need for God. It shows us different aspects of who he is and his character. But it also shows us what God expects of us, how we should live our lives still, but not following God's laws because we have to, living them because we want to. But before we look at some practical applications, I just need to highlight one more aspect of the law, which, again, may be familiar to some, but it's important we're all on the same page before moving on. So there are actually three types of Old Testament law. There was the civil law, the ceremonial law, and the moral law. And I've colour-coded them just to help you and guide you. So the green laws we can ignore because, as the text says, they were done and dusted around 2,500 years ago because they were primarily for the nation of Israel at the time. The amber ones are the main ones I'll focus on today because where they were and where they were there to help us, we don't need to live to the letter of them anymore. But the principles behind them help us both understand God's holiness and help help us get closer to God. The red ones were clearly sin, and we should be avoiding them as much as possible and seeking forgiveness when we don't. And I mention this because I've often heard in the debate um, around same-sex relationships, the line, well, if you don't agree with those, then also you shouldn't eat pork or wear certain fabrics because both of them are mentioned in the Old Testament law. And unfortunately, when people say this, they don't realise that the former comes under God's moral law and it's the same for all people for all time, no matter the circumstances. And the latter is part of the ceremonial law and is not required anymore to serve God as Jesus came and fulfilled all of the old ceremonial law. But as the old adage goes, a little knowledge is a dangerous thing because in this case, it blinds people to the truth and half-truths are one of the devil's prime weapons and we should always be wise to them. In fact, there is no issue for us as Christians following the old ceremonial law, if you really want to. If you want to come here just in like cotton or linen or whatever it recommends you to wear, then, then fine. But it won't save you, though. And it won't give you any greater access to God by following these laws. Only the grace and forgiveness of Jesus has the power to do that and save us from our sins. So before we come into land, let's look at some other examples that might trip us up as a body of believers. This is a bit more of a left-field example. When I was a younger Christian, it really bothered me when a man wore a hat in church, as I saw it not uh, respecting God in the way that the Bible says about needing to take it off. Now I hold my hand up here and say, it still does bug me a little, but should it bother me and does it matter? Well, in the past it's bothered me because, as I said earlier, I'm quite a traditionalist at heart. And although not many men wear hats these days, if you go back 100 years, all men wore hats. And when they came into church, or someone's home for that matter, they would take them off as a sign of respect. You could argue we don't live in those times anymore, and that's true. But the tradition actually comes from the Bible and laws around head covering. And Paul actually covers that in a previous chapter, saying we should still follow it. But again, we don't need to get wrapped up in the act itself necessarily, but in the heart behind it which is why the principles we are looking at today are so important. When we come into God's house, do we come into it in reverence? And if we don't choose to show it in that way by removing our hat, are we showing reverence in other ways? And these are the sort of things that, you know, something so simple as that can trip us up and cause issue between brothers and sisters. So is it an issue if you choose to do it? Well, as I said, kind of yes and no. It's definitely not a sin issue, so it doesn't affect your salvation if you as a man choose to wear a hat in church. I personally don't do it, mainly out of an inbuilt respect I have for God's house, although I admit my attitude was partly drummed into me by my mother um, going to church as a kid. But I do see the logic, and I understand what the laws on head covering are there to represent. It shows us something of who God is and our need for his covering grace. But for you, each one of you must make a personal choice. In theory, no issue if you do. But if it causes a fellow brother or sister to have an issue, then should we do it? I think the first answer to that is, firstly, we all have a responsibility. If something is bothering you, to be open and honest about how you feel. And if a brother or sister is causing us to feel something that is a distraction from us worshipping God, then first we should seek God about it, see what his word says about it, pray about it, and then, and only then, find an opportunity to say something and try and work it through with them in love. We should always, always be, also always be prepared to agree to disagree in love if we can't find a common ground. That should always be the last resort, though, for believers. The other side of that coin is the question is, in that situation, is it more important for us to wear a hat no matter what, or defer not to cause our brother and sister to stumble in some way? And that is why we need to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit and not just assume that what we do doesn't matter. Like I say, it's, it's quite a trivial example, but I'm just—it's just there as something that could be said. Other arguments I've seen that are not sin issues, but I've seen fe- fellow believers fall out or distance themselves over things like whether we should be a, you know, a vegetarian or vegan or not, whether we should have tattoos or not. I've seen arguments about whether we should watch certain TV programs or certain movies, what music we should listen to. We should never fall out with a brother and sister though in Christ over those sorts of issues. In fact, as the person thinking those things, we should be sensitive to others and their walk with God, not always thinking we have all the answers. If someone comes to correct you on something like that, we should never be too defensive. We should try and actually hear the heart behind those comments. Hopefully, they've just got our best interests at heart. But seek God about it. Test it against his word. Seek advice from someone else whose judgment you respect before necessarily changing anything that you do. For me, I love heavy rock music, even some heavy metal. Might surprise you to know. But if someone came up to me and said, thou shalt not listen to rock music, it's all from the devil, I would hope I have the humility and grace to actually try and have a conversation with them, not just write them off as some judgmental person. Now you might think, I hope I'm never that religious, but again, it's the heart that's important. For I know from personal experience, I've seen good Christians who started listening off to the sort of mainstream man's I do, then move off into darker and darker bands, and it's ended up leading them away from God. So we should never be dismissive if someone comes to us with something like that. We should respond in love and try and work it through with them. Because as Paul says at the start of the passage, just because it's allowed, or in some translations it says legal, doesn't mean it's good for us. And I would hope the person that came to me in that situation just wants the best for me, rather than just being legalistic and saying one thing and then doing another. But please hear me on this. I'm not saying that we need to change everything we do just to please everyone else. But we need to at least stop and consider whether there is something in it and try and maintain peace with each other. I hope that makes sense coming into land, Paul wraps up his thought in this chapter and provides us the principles we should be living by. Firstly, in Christ we are free, but not everything is helpful or builds us or others up, as it says in verse 23 and 24. And we can use this as the litmus test for our decision making. We aren't the centre of the universe, so we should think about how our actions affect others. This other is not restricted to the fellow believer either, also includes the unbeliever. Paul emphasises this because it doesn't come naturally. It comes supernaturally. I can certainly testify to that. We are called to be servant-hearted. We are called to be humble and act with love and grace. It's hard, otherwise we'd all be doing it. And it's so counter-culture, isn't it, to the world around us, seeking the advantage of others rather than our own self. It runs completely counter to the me-first sentiment that rules our our culture. Self-control is also a fruit of the Spirit and one which we should be constantly nurturing if we want to see both our lives and the church grow. Remember, our central purpose is to glorify God, not ourselves, as it says in verse 31. Do it all for the glory of God, and that means everything that we do in our lives. Philippians chapter 2 verse 3 and 4 says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, Rather than humility, value others above yourself. Not looking into your own interest, but the interest of others. It says in 1 Peter 1 and 14 to 16, and I'm going to summarise it, it says, obeying God's law is how we show love to Jesus. If people highlight issues in our life, how often do we just think of them as legalistic, like the Pharisees in the Gospels? But Jesus' main problem with the Pharisees was that they weren't practising what they preached not the fact that they tried to come and judge him. So it's not just a case of living how we want, no matter what other people think. Isn't that so countercultural to the world we live in today? All you ever hear these days, like the old Frank Sinatra song, is, I did it my way. Well, I'm here to tell you this morning that living my way is not living God's way. So what does it mean to live God's way? Well, as per the principles laid out by Paul here, there are three things that we need to ask ourselves before engaging in an action or living in a certain way? Is it beneficial to ourselves and our walk with God? Will it help us or will it hinder us? Is what I'm engaging in glorifying to God? And finally, is what I'm doing beneficial to others? And they're three really good questions that we can ask ourselves if we're not sure about something that we're doing or way we're living. Is the way I'm living out my freedom and my salvation glorifying to God? Is the way I dress, the way I drive, the way I spend time with friends, the way I spend my wages, the way what I look at on my web browser, the way I parent my children, are they all glorifying to God? Are they things we are participating in that make us look no different to the culture around us, that cause offence to those around us or tarnish the faith to those who don't understand it? It needs to be something we think about every day. It needs to be deliberate. However, I should also stress that we shouldn't get paralysed in the process, which is why being sensitive to the Holy Spirit is so important. For the Corinthians, there was no need to do an extensive research project about the origins of the meat and whether it was purchased at the market or not. If you're invited to dinner, don't make it weird by asking where they got their meat from. But if the subject comes up and they told you it was halal, then as a Christian, don't be afraid to abstain in a way, as a way to share your faith, but equally it won't affect your faith if you eat the meal, which is why it's so important to be sensitive to the Spirit's leading. We can't control every person's per- perception of us and our actions, but when we know that it might cause a person an issue, we should gladly defer, as it says in verse 27 to 30. But whatever we do, it should be to give glory to God, not to make ourselves look better, or worse, in someone's eyes, but to be responsible to God, to your fellow brother or sister in Christ, and also to the world around you. We need to reflect his grace to each other so that when Christ returns, he will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Don't we want that to be said about us? Amen. Let's pray. We're going to take communion in a minute. um, And I would encourage you, to use that opportunity to just think about about the times that we don't act with grace and humility and just ask for God's forgiveness and think about how we can show that grace and that love to those around us, whether they're believers or not. So if you want to take communion, if you've got it with you, if you're a believer and you want to share it, just take a moment to get right with God before you take it, and then I'll